Paul really wanted to go to Jerusalem. We've seen this the last couple of weeks. In chapter 19, a couple of weeks ago, verse 21, it says, After uh, the time in Ephesus, when Paul was run out of the city because they were wrecking the economy, because of his preaching against idolatry, Paul resolved in the Spirit, verse 21, to go to Jerusalem. He was resolved in the Spirit. And then last week in chapter 20, in verse 16, it says Paul was hastening to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And then in verse 22 of chapter 20, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Whatever the case, the Holy Spirit wanted Paul to go to Jerusalem, and he's making that clear. Even if Paul didn't fully understand why, And even knowing that danger probably was awaiting him there, Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And that's where he wants to go. But Paul's friends did not want him to go. Uh, There were others, as we see in the beginning of chapter 21, just before the passage that was just read. Paul makes a couple of stops, and his first stop is in the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. In verse 4, it says, those who were with him quote, through the Spirit, were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And then we have Agabus, this prophet who comes a couple of verses later when Paul is in Caesarea, just uh, outside of Jerusalem. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over into the hands of the Gentiles. This is the second time we've seen Agabus, by the way. You may remember Acts chapter 11. Agabus came and made a prophecy about a famine that was going to come to the land, which did come to pass. And so Agabus is a credible prophet here that hears the Holy Spirit. And then in Caesarea, again, the friends of Paul in verse 12 said, said, we urge him not to go up to Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit in the same way that he was revealing to Paul that he should go to Jerusalem, seems to be saying to Paul's friends that he should not go to Jerusalem. But that was just revealing how much they were loving him and caring for him because they knew what was going to happen to Paul if he made it to Jerusalem. And so Paul's response is telling, verse 13, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready to go to Jerusalem, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's Holy Spirit conviction is deepened through his friend's love for him. When he sees their love that are telling him not to go, he actually takes that as a deeper conviction and affirmation that he should go. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the result, verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So today we're going to be focusing on that phrase, the will of the Lord. How do we get to the place where we can be like those people and say, let the will of God be done? So some opening questions for you. How do you typically make decisions? And how do you know if you've, making, if, if, if you've made or if you're making the right decision? 
And what is the motivation ultimately behind your decisions? There's a lot of people in the world today that make decisions uh, based off of astrology. And if you walk downtown Salem today, you'll find a lot of places that can help you with that, to find astrology uh, to help you make better decisions in life. You can understand your zodiac sign, which will help you make decisions. You can discover your moon phase. You can read your horoscope. You can learn about the air signs, the fire signs, the earth signs, and the water signs. And supposedly all these will help you make decisions in life. Or if you go downtown Salem or other places, you can, you can find people that will help you look into a crystal ball to help you make decisions. This, this process of seeing is known as scrying, S-C-R-Y-I-N-G, scrying, whereby images are claimed to be seen in the crystals or other media such as water and are interpreted as meaningful information to help you make important decisions in life. Or you can find tarot cards. And there's actually a five-card tarot card spread that actually, if you line it up, looks mysteriously like a cross to me, with one on the top, with the number one on the top, four, two, five in the middle, and three on the bottom. Card number one, you flip it over, it reveals your motivation. Card number two reveals your ideal outcome. Card number three reveals your values. Card number four is revealing the option number one likely outcome. And card number five is option two's likely outcome. How do Christians make decisions, though? If that's what a lot of people in the world go to today, and maybe even especially people in Salem literally today go to those kinds of things to help make decisions, how do Christians make decisions? I'm just going to forewarn you, I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you today because the Bible has a lot to say about the will of God and about how to make decisions. Let me just give you a couple of opening points uh, and then I'm going to get into three bigger points later. What do Christians believe about how to make decisions? First, we believe that God is the creator and the sustainer of the whole universe. And therefore, he goes before us and he knows the beginning and the end. And therefore, it's fruitless for us to try to go in front of him in making our decisions. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. Secondly, we believe that God has a good and perfect will for each person in the world. And the world is not random, but it's purposeful. And his will is not for our harm, but for our good. But, as we learn from Paul, this does not mean we make decisions based off of things that will or won't harm us. Because sometimes the will of God actually goes through pain. Number three, we believe that God makes his will known to us. And he's made it known to us through the person of Jesus. And by knowing him, and by the indwelling of, our Holy, of the Holy Spirit... God speaks his ways to his people. And that guides our decision-making because he is guiding us. And the last one of these first opening comments is, we believe that God made the church to help discern God's will for each other and even for the whole world. That in part, the church exists to help each other discern the will of God for our lives. We align ourselves to the will of God that is to be the goal of every decision we make. And so, for instance, Ephesians 3, verses 8 to 12. Let me just read this for a second. This is Paul speaking. 
He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of his grace and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That's what what the scriptures teach us about decision making. And now I want to use this text today with Paul to dive a little bit deeper into what does actually this mean. And so as we're continuing on in this series of, of seeing God on the move, part of this is is understanding God on the move in our specific lives that help guide specific decisions in our lives today. This isn't just an ancient text from 2,000 years ago, but this is a continuing reality in our lives that helps us live our life with purpose and clarity and understanding. Richly purposeful. God on the move, not just then, God on the move now in our everyday lives today. So the questions we're gonna look at today are what is the will of God? How do we discern it? And what enables us to eventually say, like Paul's friends, let thy will be done. So first, what is the will of God? Um, There is a a Danish museum that lent an artist $84,000 so that he could make a work of art to put in the museum to show the world. And Kevin, I think I have a picture here to show. Can you show what the piece of art actually ended up looking like? That's what the artist turned into the museum. $84,000 he was paid to produce a piece of work of art to put in the museum. And he decided to turn in a blank canvas. And he called the work of art, quote, take the money and run. That's what he called his artwork. I think that was almost certainly not the will of the museum that he produced that kind of artwork. I think they were hoping he would actually produce something, you know, with anything on the paper, maybe. Yeah, anything. But he produced nothing and he called it art. $84,000, take the money and run. That was not the Danish Museum's will, I would imagine. But what is the will of God? It's actually, like I said earlier, talking about scripture. Like I said, I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you today. The scripture talks a lot about the will of God with clarity. And we can know the general big picture will of God with absolute certainty and clarity because it's written with absolute certainty and clarity in the scriptures. And I'm going to give you two big categories of how God explains his will in the scriptures. The first big category is God's plan for the world. That God's will, God God has a will for the world that he makes very clear throughout scriptures, abundantly clear. And within that, firstly, foremost, primarily, God's will for the world is for his name to be glorified. Psalm 86, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor there are any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Ephesians 1 says, In him we have, in, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him 
who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So what is, what is God's will for the world? It starts, first and foremost, for his glory. The world revolves around him, not around us. Point number two, within God's will for the world, is his, his will for the world is for him to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Matthew 9 says, Jesus says, uh, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, Go therefore and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came to call the right, not the righteous, but sinners. God's will for the world is to save sinners. Number three, God's will for the world is to give himself for us. Listen to this from Isaiah 53. This is an Old Testament prophet. It was the will of God to crush him. Who's him? The suffering servant that we now know is the person of Jesus Christ. It says here, Isaiah 53, it's the will of God to crush Jesus. This was part of God's plan of redemption, was to put it on the person of Jesus and to crush him so that he might save the world. This Jesus you delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's Acts chapter 2. God's will for the world is for Jesus to be the one who was crushed. God's will for the world is for him to ultimately make all things new and right. If you've read the books, The Lord of the Rings, or or watched the movies, The Lord of the Rings, there's a, a famous line in there of Sam, who's talking to Gandalf, and he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And as Christians, that's what we believe, is that all the sad things that we're experiencing in the world now will one day come untrue because of God making all things right and new. That is God's will for the world, for all of the universe, for all of history. An amazing thought. Revelation 21, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And ultimately, God's plan for the world is to dwell with us forever. That he will make the the heavens on the earth There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and he will come and dwell with us and live with us forever and us with him. An amazing thought. That's God's will for the world. But the second category within what we know about God's will is his desire for you and me. You know, we can see maybe the big plan of God over all history, but what does it mean for you and I? What's his desire for each of us individually? And again, the scriptures have a lot to say about this. Once you begin unpacking this, you find evidence all over the place. John 15 talks about God's desire for us to know him, for us to abide in him and him in us so that we know him and are intimately connected to him. Second thing is, is God desires for us to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth through Christ. Again, God desires all people to be saved, 1 Timothy 2 says to come to knowledge of the truth through the one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 4, 5. Third, God's will for us, God's desire for us is for us to be made holy, to be made sanctified every day. 
This is, listen, again, this is just how clear scripture is. You know, like sometimes we ask this question, what is God's will for my life? And it's a, admittedly a hard thing to come to understand. It can be a mysterious thing. But then you read a scripture like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, and it says this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's pretty clear. <laughs> what is the will of God for you? Your sanctification. What does that mean? What is, what is sanctification? It is this process of you becoming more and more and more holy and conformed to the image of God day by day. That by knowing and trusting Jesus, he's actually conforming you into his image day by day. That that's God's will for you. That no matter what happens in your life, that that is actually moving you towards this idea of sanctification, being made holy. And that means keeping his commandments, like Sarah read to the children earlier. That means doing good and obedience to authorities. That means living for more than our human passions, but for his desires. And that means understanding the will of God and not being foolish. All those points, by the way, have scriptures attached to them. God's will, God's desire for us is for our good. We know in Romans 8 that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And ultimately, God's desire for us is to, is to make him known, to know him and to make him known, to go to the ends of the earth and to tell the world about him. So friends, that's really just the first big point. What is the will of God? It's, it's those things. It's understanding what the scriptures have to say about God's plan for the world and his desires for you and me. And the scriptures, again, have a lot to say about this. That is the will of God. That is the will of the Lord. And so that's the end of the sermon, right? No. <laughs> you probably wish. But no. The, the sermon goes on because we have to discern what this means for you and I today in our own individual lives. And so point two is how do we discern the will of God? How do we see that that's his, that's his will, that's his desire? But then how do we discern it in the modern day for us? So that's point two um, for us here. And my opening illustration for the second point is just as ridiculous as the first point. Uh, there's a, a, a Buddhist preacher in Japan that is named Mendar. And this, this preacher is meant to communicate eternal Buddhist truths to Japanese Buddhists. But the unique thing about this Buddhist preacher in Japan named Mendar is, Kevin, you can put the picture on the screen now, is that this preacher is actually a robot. That they have used artificial intelligence to give some kind of response and preaching coming from a robot to teach the truths of Buddhism in Japan. And it's actually been very well received. It's about two meters tall, it says. It's made of aluminum and silicone, and it's a robot priest. And its creators hope it will encourage more people to take up an interest in Buddhism. That's how Buddhists in Japan are discerning the will of God, is by going to a robot. How do you and I discern the will of God today? As I said earlier at the very beginning of the sermon, the Holy Spirit is deeply at work in Acts chapter 21. And so Christians discern the will of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And like I said earlier, the Holy Spirit actually seems to be speaking to Paul and to his friends uh, and communicating two different outcomes. So how do we understand this? First, let's just understand how the Holy Spirit himself works. For those that believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers and speaks to them. And again, the scriptures talk at length about the Holy Spirit's involvement in our life. The spirit of truth, Jesus says, who will come after me. And you know him for he dwells in you and he will be with you. John 16 goes on to say this. Uh, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Because when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he, the Holy Spirit, will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, Jesus says. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see what's happening there? The Father gives Jesus truth. And then when Jesus leaves and ascends back up into heaven, he leaves the Holy Spirit to communicate to us his purposes. And so that's what's happening here in Acts 21 with these, with these followers of Jesus, Paul and these guys in Tyre and Caesarea, is they are listening to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life and trusting what he's saying to them. And so when a decision needs to be made for you and I today, Christians stop and we listen to the Holy Spirit's guiding. And we trust that that actually is truthful, that that is real. We sit there and we ask, Holy Spirit, show me what I or we should do. And so what do we do when there's disagreement about what to do? How do we discern what's really going on? Almost exactly a year ago, I'd say maybe 13 months ago now, uh, actually probably 14 months, I'll go back a little bit, to August of 2020, someone sent me a message and told me about an opening of a pastoral job at First Baptist Church of Salem, Massachusetts. And this person said to me, if you're interested, I can reach out to Pastor Bob Dibbs and let him know that you're interested. And do you know what I said? I said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> I said, I don't think I'm interested right now. And I went back that afternoon and I talked to my wife, Sarah, and I said, hey, Sarah, just so you know, someone said I should look into this job at First Baptist Church of Salem. And I told, and I told them, uh, I'm not interested. And do you know what Sarah said? I think you should go meet up with Pastor Bob Dibbs. I think you should be interested. Why do I bring that up? Because it's, it's very similar to, I think, what's happening in Acts 21. Paul says, I want to go to Jerusalem. And the others say, please, Paul, don't go. Here, here's Sarah and I, kind of on different pages at the beginning. And we began to walk together through this process of trying to discern what the Holy Spirit was speaking to us. And you know the end of the story, because here I am. But what happened over time was the Lord began to confirm and to clarify through community, through listening to his voice, through little nudges, through little signs that we saw, and ultimately just knowing. 
So let me walk through that process here of what that looks like. Because I think discernment is a dance between you and the Holy Spirit, kind of coming together, doing this dance together. Maybe it's clumsy at times, but ultimately it comes together as this dance. And so discernment first in the Spirit uh, happens best in community. When you bring it up to somebody else, when you talk about it with a good friend or with your wife or ultimately to the church, that's where things begin to be understood more. It requires seeking out the community because this is what Paul did. Look at verse 4. He says, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Paul loved to go and seek out disciples to stay with and to be in community. And part of that was him talking through his plans of what he was going to be doing and receiving the feedback. And so discernment requires seeking out community and also involves listening to each other. And so these people in in Acts 21 gave feedback to Paul about what they think he should do. And so I encourage you, if you have a decision you're trying to make or something you're wrestling through, bring it to the church. Bring it to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Bring it to close confidants and begin to process it through together because the Holy Spirit does come in there. It says in other places in scriptures, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. How is that possible? That's that's the mysterious working of God through community. That's why he made the church. So if you're struggling with a decision now and you're wondering, I I don't know what to do, bring it to the church. Bring it to the faithful followers of Christ, the followers of God, those who love him, and they will help you discern. What do you think God is saying to you? What do you think the Holy Spirit is saying? Why do you think that? And you'll begin to see this bigger picture. Something I found to understand, too, is that discernment in the spirit actually usually cuts deeper than our first instinct. Like I said, my first instinct with this job was, I don't think so. And I, again, I don't know why I said that. I just, I just didn't think so. You, you, know, you know how much thought I gave to that at that time? About three seconds. <laughs> and said, nah, I don't think so. Really? That's a life-changing decision that I gave about three seconds attention to. That's why you bring things to community. Discernment usually cuts deeper than our first instinct. You know, Romans says that you know, we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Why? So that we don't become conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. This requires a sacrifice. Laying down maybe an initial instinct and saying, okay, Lord, I'll I'll give this a chance. I'll fancy this thought. Show me why you think this might be a great thing. And always be careful to say, I will never do something because the Holy Spirit loves to work with that phrase and say, actually, maybe I will have you do that. Sarah, by the way, said that we will never raise a family in Salem. Here we are. (laughs) Thirdly here, discernment in the spirit, I think usually does involve a nudge or a hunch. Again, we're not really given full reasoning here from Paul why he wants to go to Jerusalem. It doesn't give us a specific example for this trip to Jerusalem, why he wants to go. It kind of just feels like he just knows. It says he he was constrained by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And so I do think there's a, there's a nudge or a hunch. Again, why did Sarah say, I think you should listen and go talk to Bob? She had a hunch. She had a nudge. And so don't, don't doubt those things. 
Uh, but again, bring it to community and have it tested. Number four, I think discernment in the Spirit oftentimes reveals some kind of clear sign as well along the way to confirm that nudge. And again, for Paul, I think the, I think the confirmation for Paul was seeing how much his friends cared about him and loved him. They didn't want him to go because they thought he might be harmed or die. But for Paul, that actually was reason for him to go. That was actually a confirmation of his nudge to go. That was the sign he needed, I think, to say in verse 13, I am ready to go to Jerusalem, even to die for the name of Jesus. For me, what was the clear sign for me that maybe Salem might be something I should be interested in? At that first lunch that I had with Pastor Bob back in August of last year, Pastor Bob started talking about this role at this church in this city being a missionary type of calling. And I said, he's on to me. He's reading my playbook. He knows what I'm about. Because if he's, if he's going to start talking about this as a missionary calling, I'm in. And that was the sign, the beginning of the sign that the Lord may be in this. Lastly, discernment in the Spirit is always confirmed by Scripture. Again, the Scripture has a ton to say about the will of God. So take your discernment process and read the Scriptures. Hebrews 4 says the Word of of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A.W. Tozer, a theologian, says, it's not the will of God if it goes against the word of God. So how do you know if it's not the will of God? If the scriptures are contradicting it, your decision, then it's definitely not the will of God. So read scripture, and the Lord will confirm his direction for you. It clarifies his will. It tests your motivations. It is your constant compass in life. My last one point What is the one thing, ultimately, that enables us to say, let the will of the Lord be done? Because that's where they get to at verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. What is the one thing that enables us to say that when we don't know what to do or when we're making a decision? There's a quote by an unknown person. I couldn't find who actually said this, but the quote is, the will of God is not a burden to bear, but a pillow to rest on. And so the one thing that enables us to ultimately say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know exactly what you're saying, but let your will be done. The one thing that enables us to say that is knowing the person of Jesus. And why do I say that? Because when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane on that stained glass window in the back corner of our sanctuary, he comes before the Father and he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But yet, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus displays both sides of the party here. He shows us what the friends of Paul were like by saying, If it's possible, I don't want to go to the cross. You see how he he relates to Paul's friends here and has that same heart of, you know, that's a hard thing. I see the pain that's probably going to come. Lord, if you'd let that pass, 
Let it be done. But then he also shows the spirit of Paul here too, of yet not my will but yours, of if this is what you want me to do, I will go. I am ready to go to Jerusalem, to the cross, to bear the sins of the world. And so Jesus Christ is the one who accomplishes the eternal will of God and releases us from the burden of not knowing it by making it the pillow that we can lay on because he is the will of God in the flesh. And so we can walk with him and pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We trust in you, Lord Jesus, because you have gone to the uttermost for us. That we can take our God-given passions and find our will, the will of God in those passions. And put away our earthly fears and look to him. That that fear can lead us to a deep dependency on him, just like it did for Jesus. Jesus, I think, was fearful in that moment in the garden. And that enabled him to say, Lord, I trust in you because I, I, I know I can't even do it on my own. And we learn to love, ultimately, as he loved us. One more picture to show you here on the screen, and it's a picture of Aidan and Kara uh, going to Bolivia because we had to say goodbye to them this week, and they had to say goodbye to their families this week. They were, in some ways, doing what Paul did, going out to an unknown, faraway place. They're going to be away for three years without seeing family before they're able to come back and visit. And so... They truly believe they're doing the will of God, even though it causes the pain of leaving loved ones. And it causes us the pain to have to send them away. But we say with the Lord, let the will of the Lord be done, because we can learn to love as he loved us. And part of that love is releasing others out of love, and part of that love is going out with that love that Jesus had. To close, there's an allegory originates in Algeria, this nation in Africa. And this is how it goes. In a far distant land, a man came out of his home. And as his custom was, he looked around his home, looked around his village, and then looked far, far down the road. As he strained to see, he noticed a shadowy figure moving in the direction from a distance. And so he shouted, quote, there's a lion coming down the road. As the lion got closer and closer, someone else yelled out, That's not a lion, that's a man. It's our enemy, and he's coming toward us. And as the man moved closer and closer, someone else exclaimed, That's not our enemy, it's my brother. God brings clarity to us by nearness. The nearer we are to him, the more clarity we see his plan. So friends, brothers and sisters, how do we make decisions? How do we know the will of God? By drawing near to Jesus and trusting in his beautiful, sovereign plan. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Father, we entrust our lives to you. We see the beauty of Jesus and his love for us that makes the most sense of the world we live in. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to discern your will and ultimately to entrust ourselves to you by saying, let the will of the Lord be done, no matter what comes our way 
or the way of those around us. Thank you for this church that helps us to discern in community the workings of your spirit. May we live boldly for you. In Jesus' name, amen.